Welcome to the international teaching ministry of Dr. Joseph G. Matera. As the presiding bishop of Christ Covenant Coalition, he travels the world teaching biblical truth with profound results in both the church world and the marketplace. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart and transform your mind as His Word is spoken by one of God's ablest communicators. All right, Father, we pray you'd bless this Word now. Help us to understand it. We thank you for every father here, but today we want to honor you as Father. In Jesus' name, amen. What we're going to do today is we're going to go through five themes of the book of Malachi. Uh, the book of Malachi is the last book of the First Testament, right before the New Testament. And we're going to look at five themes on what God is saying he wants or desires to honor him. And so, of course, Father's Day, we have the greatest privilege in the world to call God our Father. Someone say, God is our Father. So when Jesus taught us to pray uh, in the Gospels, he told us to say, our Father. So he's not just my Father, but he's our, which means whether you like me or not, you're my brother or my sister. And we're together in one family. We have one God and one Father. So to the world, God is, you know, a God or creator or a higher power. But when we become Christians, he becomes our daddy, our poppy, our father. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And the Bible uh, gives us instructions on every area of our life. In this particular book, the main theme is how to honor God as a father. Now, even though it's the first testament, there are some weird things that they did in the Old Testament, the First Testament, that some of us may not be familiar with, so I'll try to explain it as best as possible. But you'll be able to get some of the principles from this pretty easily. So in the book of Malachi, he was the first Italian to be a prophet, Malachi. That's a joke. Yeah, I, I remember when I first saw that, I thought it was the Malachi Papers. I don't know if you ever saw that movie in the 1970s. Malachi, what in the world is this doing here? But it's Malachi, I found out. I was disappointed because I am half Italian. Um, but in the book of Malachi, we're going to skip around. We're obviously not going to read every verse in this book. Um, but we're going to skip through each chapter. And so let's go to chapter 1, verse 8. And God speaking through the prophet Malachi. And he was speaking during the time after they were restored from Persia and Babylon, and they came into their land again, and God enabled them to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. And after the temple was rebuilt by Ezra and Nehemiah and others, Malachi came, and once you say it once, it's hard not to say it, uh, Malachi came and started correcting them because they were missing it in certain areas. And so, verse 8, it says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Now, this is God speaking through Malachi. If then I am a father, then where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? And then he answers, By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, How have we polluted you? 
by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your leader, your governor. Will he accept that or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And then we jump down to verse 12. Uh, verse 11 actually says, My name will be great among the nations, but you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted. But you say, what weariness is this? He says, when you bring the lame or the sick, and this you bring as your offering, shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has an unblemished male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So, in the First Testament, how many know there are two Testaments? The First Testament, uh, Jewish system of honoring God involved sacrificing animals. Now, there were explicit instructions in the First Testament on what kind of animal was to be sacrificed. And so, basically, what God is saying is that they were giving him diseased animals, animals that were blind and that were lame or that were sick. That is to say they gave God their worst. They gave God what they did not want anyway, right? And so this theme of this particular chapter is the word sacrifice. Someone say sacrifice. And so Everybody here lives a sacrificial life. I know that you, you're looking at me a little crazy. Uh, everybody, you know, Paris Hilton lives a sacrificial life. Beyonce, uh, the Kardashians, they, they live sacrificial lives. Everybody in this room sacrifices. Did you know that? The question is, to whom and for what? Sacrifice means that you give something up for something that you want, right? So in that respect, everybody here and everybody in the world gives something up to get something else. The question is, are you living sacrificially only for yourself or are you living it for others or are you living for God? And so what they had to sacrifice cost them something. They were supposed to give God the best of their flock, unblemished, uh, a firstborn unblemished male that cost them a lot of money. And they did that so that God can overlook their sins. Now, in the Second Testament, Jesus was the lamb, the perfect spotless lamb, Without sin, that means he wasn't blemished. Uh, so the lame, the sick, disease in the First Testament signified sin because that's where uh, sickness and all these diseases came ultimately from sin that came in the Garden of Eden. And so Jesus was without sin. He was without spot. He was without wrinkle. He had no blemish. He was God's very best. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But in the First Testament, that was before Jesus came, and so we needed to sacrifice our best 
in order for God to overlook our sin. And what he was correcting them in was the fact that they gave God what they didn't want anyway. You see, God wants to be honored. He wants to be honored among all nations. And what he's saying is the first thing he thinks about when it comes to honor is what do we give up for his sake? What do we give up in terms of our time, our talents, our money? What do we give up in terms of our focus in life? And so do you know that we can be somebody who's not walking in any sexual sin or we could be somebody who is regularly coming to church, we're regularly giving God finances, we're regularly doing what looks really good to everybody and still be guilty of the worst sin in the Bible. You know what the worst sin in the Bible is? It's not a sexual sin. The worst sin that we could possibly be guilty of, as a matter of fact, it's the number one sin that caused God to judge the Jewish people over and over again, and that is the sin of idolatry. It's when we have another God before him. So we can live a straight-laced life and look like we got it all together, but yet if we are number one in our life, we're guilty of idolatry. If somebody or something else is number one other than God, we're guilty of idolatry. So it's not enough to give God leftover time, leftover talent, leftover this and leftover that. That's like giving God, in the First Testament, a lame animal, a blind animal that you wouldn't want as a pet. You wouldn't want that animal for, for yourself. You wouldn't eat that animal because it's diseased, yet you give it to God. Sometimes we give God our worst. We give God our leftovers. And on this Father's Day, we need to understand that God wants our best, the best of our time, the best of our life, the best of everything. Love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. And second is like it, loving our neighbors, we love ourselves. And so this is what it's all about. And we're all going to be tested in that. I remember um, when I first became a Christian, I was a Christian for maybe uh, three or four years. I mean, three or four months, rather. I'm sorry. Three or four months. And uh, I was heading in a certain direction in my career, happened to be music. And I wanted to be famous. I wanted to have a lot of money. I wanted to make it big in music. And I remember... Um, there was a few crazy wild things that took place that stopped me from having big breaks in my career. One was when I was 17, another one was when I was 18. Idiotic things that someone did, which I won't get into. Um, and so I remember I was 19 years old, and uh, I remember I was filled with the Spirit of God, with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. And if you don't know what that is, don't worry about it right now. And I was baptized in the Spirit. I was filled with the power of God. And I came home at night. Uh, actually, before I came home, my friend who prayed for me said to me, now you're going to be tested of the devil. I said, what do you mean I'm going to be tested? He said, you're going to get the biggest test you ever got as a Christian, which wasn't incredibly long. I've only been a Christian for four or five months. 
And uh, he said to me, yep, yeah, it's going to come this week. And so I remember I, the next day I came back from band practice, and uh, I was just about to read my Bible. And a phone call came from my old friend. And he said, listen, I got a gig. You don't have to audition. You fly to Puerto Rico Wednesday, and um, you just start recording. You'll be playing all over the world. Um, and I got something else. I can't take this gig. So I told him, you can have it. You don't have to audition. They already know you're a really good bo uh, uh, guitar player. So just go. I said, well, I said, well hold on a second. Um, I said, can I let you know tomorrow? He said, uh, okay. He thought I was crazy. So I hang up the phone with him, and I wake up my dad, and I said, Dad, I don't know what to do. I just got this offer. You know, I could start making in that time $500 a week. That was 1978. That was like making 2500 maybe 4000 a week now. I don't know. So my dad starts cussing me. He said, what do you mean? What are you asking me what you should do for? Take it, you jerk. So I'm saying, oh, man, I don't know what to do. So I'm praying. And I said, you know, God, this is not you. I said, I feel really tense. I don't know if I should do this or not. I couldn't get a hold of anybody. Nobody's answering the phone. I was a new Christian. And I said, let me just sit down and relax and read the Bible. And one more time I prayed. I said, God, show me if this is temptation from the devil. As soon as I said the word temptation, my Bible opened up to Matthew chapter 4, and I had two words highlighted in yellow, tempter and devil. It was when Satan was showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, if you just bow down and worship him. He said, all this I will give you if you just worship me. And immediately God showed me that's what my friend was talking about the night before, that I'm going to get tempted. And I immediately called my, not immediately, because it was by the time it was 12 o'clock at night. The next day I called my friend up and I said, Marty, I am very sorry, but I can't take this. He said, What? He said, you have another gig? And I said, yeah, I have another gig. And I didn't even want to tell him what it was because he would have thought I was nuts. And I just didn't take it. So I walked away from that. And I still don't know whatever happened to those people, that band or anything. But I just know one thing. You have to give up something to get what you really want. And God allowed me to be tested. And so that sacrifice. And you know, there's nothing wrong with playing music. Certain music is not good. But that wasn't my primary calling. It was something else. And if I would have taken that, I probably wouldn't be here. I probably wouldn't have been married. So we need, but wouldn't have been married to Joyce. I maybe got married to someone else. I don't know what would have happened. But the point I'm trying to make is we have to give God our best. And it means to be willing to say no to certain things. God can't give you something unless you could say no to other things. It's not just saying yes to the right opportunity. It's saying no to good things that may not be God's will. How many understand what I'm saying? So we want to give God our best. So that's the first thing. It has to do with sacrifice. Everybody here sacrifices. The word sacrifice implies enduring pain. Even the most pleasure-seeking people endure pain, endure suffering to get what they want. 
It doesn't matter what it is. You have to live a sacrificial life. You might as well live it for God because that's the only one, ultimately, that is worth it in the long run. And then we see another theme in the book of Malachi. Let's go with verse 10 of chapter 2. It says, Have we not all one Father? Has not God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? Profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has been faithless and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. In verse 13, and the second thing you do is you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why doesn't he? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, whom you have been faithless, because she's your companion, your wife by covenant. Did he not make you one and with a portion of the Spirit bring you into unity? And why did God make you one? Because he was seeking for godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her covers his garment with violence. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. So the second way we honor God as Father is when we are faithful to our family. The Bible says if we don't provide for our family, we are worse than infidels. It tells us here that uh, they profane the sanctuary of the Lord by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Now, what does that mean? They married the daughter of a foreign god. That could mean either they went with another religion or it could mean that they married somebody who wasn't serving God. Now, many of you may not know this, but the Bible commands us as committed Christians only to marry other committed Christians. And why is that? Because if you marry somebody who is not equally devoted to God as you are, then you are going to wind up compromising in how you raise your children. And what does he say here? I just read that he wanted to bring us with somebody so he would have godly offspring. God wants us to nurture our family. He wants to bring our family up in the ways of the Lord. And if you marry someone who is of a different religion or of different faith or who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ or might even be in the church but not as committed to God as you are, you are looking for trouble. They may want to have no children. You may want to have five. You may want to uh, uh, bring that child to church every week. They may not want you to. You may want to give God your tithes and offerings. They may have a problem with that. You're going to have a war on your hands. And if you don't have a war, you're not going to have the, the same commitment and goals. And you won't be as powerful as you should be. Now, if you already married someone who doesn't know the Lord, then God will work it out somehow. It will be difficult. Uh, if you didn't know any better and you had certain things or you might have been married or divorced, that's not what this is talking about. What this is talking about is after you are a Christian, after you're committed to God and you know better, God wants us to honor him in our family. I remember teaching my kids uh, growing up, especially my daughters. You know, we want to 
understand that we have certain values. It's not just someone who's good looking. It's not just someone who says they love Jesus. You value education, they should value education. You value hard work, they should value hard work. I remember one time I wore boxer shorts and I pulled my pants down, walking around like this saying, you want to marry someone who looks like this? Or do you want to marry somebody who's going to do something with their life? So it's not just someone who's a Christian. If they don't want to work, if they're lazy, they sit in their butt all day, if they don't have ambition, and you marry them just because they love Jesus, you may be going to heaven, but you're going to have hell on earth. The romance lasts six months. After that, the number one reason for divorce is money, M-O-N-E-Y. And if they don't know how to provide for you and you marry them because they're good looking, man, I was just in San Diego. There's a lot of guys with a nice body, but all they did all day is surf. That's all they did. All these guys, blonde hair, blue eyes, big belts, surfing. Good looking guy. The fun after three months is gonna, not going to last too long when you don't have any money and you start having babies, right? And so, you know, we need to marry people who have our goals. I remember there was a beautiful girl who was after me in that church that when I first came to Christ. My wife still once in a while says to me, you're crazy. You didn't go with her. She, I, I said, what's wrong with you? And I'll tell you. That girl, she wanted me to drive her home once, and I, it's almost like I interviewed her. So I drove her home, and it's like Barbie. That's what she looked like, Barbie, a real-life Barbie. And I asked her what her goals were in life. I think I was just like 19 or 20. No, I was 20 at that point. And I asked her what her goals were in life. And when she told me her goals, I knew right in my heart, that's it the last time I'll be with her because my goal was to be in full-time church ministry. I was totally on fire for God, and I knew that that's what I wanted, and I wanted someone who's going to be like that with me. Now, you don't have to be in church ministry to be on fire for God. You could be an architect on fire for God. You could be in politics and on fire for God. You could, you know, I don't believe that only pastors are the only ones who can serve God, but I wanted somebody who's going to marry me, have the same goals and work with me. And when this girl told me what her goals were, that was it. Never, I said hi to her, but never again was I even interested. And so it's not just somebody in the church. It's not just someone who's good looking. It's we need to have a common purpose. We need to have a commonality. You know, in our family, we value education, uh, hard work. We value diligence. And if that's what you value, then you need to look at all these things before you hook up with somebody, if you know what I mean. And God will give you the right person. So uh, God was dishonored because they married outside their faith. God was dishonored because they were this rampant divorce. And people think that they could just serve God any way they want. They say, I love God, but they're not faithful at home. Now, every marriage has problems. Every marriage has challenges. You might have fallen. You might have fallen several times. But you know what? God says when we, in spite of our challenges, we remain faithful in our families. That's what he loves. Nobody has a perfect family. Nobody has a perfect marriage. Nobody has perfect kids. But you know what? We continue to serve God 
and continue to go forward the best way we can and honor God in that family. So let's go to um, the third theme of honoring God. Let's go to uh, Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. We can honor God by sacrifice, number one. We honor God with our families, number two. Number three, we honor God with our words. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Let's go on to verse 13 now. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? When you say, it is vain to serve God, what is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking Humbly before the Lord of hosts. But now we call the arrogant blessed. Evil do, do is not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And so God said, you have wearied me with your words. And then he says in verse 13, your words have been hard against me. Wow. God listens to our words. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't just listen when we're praising him in church or when we're praying. And he was listening to them when they were complaining. And they were saying, what profit is it by us serving God? What good is it? It's vain to serve God. In other words, even the arrogant evildoers are following themselves, their own desires, and they're blessed. I remember when I first came to Christ... I was with a, a young lady, she was a Christian for three years, and we had a desire to share our faith, and so we gave out these little white things they call tracts, I don't know what they call them now, but tracts, and it was supposed to have a, a message of the gospel in it, and so I remember we went right here, 56th Street at 6th Avenue in the park, and we were handing out tracts, and I was amazed when this girl, her opening line to people was... Uh, come to Jesus, he will make you rich. And I, when I heard her say that, I said, come again? What do you mean by that? He's going to make you rich. I said, rich meaning spiritually or? No, money. And I said, why God? I'm surprised the whole neighborhood didn't come to Christ right away. <laughs> I wish it was that easy. Come to Jesus, you're rich. Doesn't matter if you're on food stamps. Doesn't matter if you ever went to school. Doesn't matter if you work. He'll make you rich unequivocally, you're rich. Of course, that is the false assumption people have at times. They think, well, if I serve God, all things are going to go well. You think that? Just read the book of Job. Sometimes it gets worse when you become a Christian. Sometimes it's harder. Uh, it's not as simple, well, if you serve God, everything's going to get better. Well, sometimes you get tested. And here's the confusing thing. There's a whole book in the Old Testament about this. Read the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk, H-A-B-B, -B, and you spell the rest, Habakkuk. <laughs> Just call him Habby. Habby, read Habby. Three chapters, incredible. It's all about God. I don't understand it. How come the wicked prosper? How come people that love you are not prospering? 
And, uh, and sometimes we see people that aren't serving God. They don't love Jesus, and they have a lot of money. They have a beautiful house and all this stuff. And sometimes that really irks Christians. That, gives, that tests people. Psalm 73 uh, actually is a whole psalm about how even the wicked sometimes prosper. And the uh, people who serve God are having a problem with envy and jealousy. They're wondering, they're confused. And we fall into this thing of complaining and you say things like, wow, even the wicked prosper. What profit is it for us to serve God? Some people think, well, if I just give my tithes right away, all the money's going to come in that I need. If I just start following God, everything's going to be easy. And you know what? It's not that simple. Now, sometimes things go much better, especially in the long term. They usually do, especially when you turn your life around from living a foolish life. But God looks at us, and sometimes we are tested, and he listens to our words. And in both of these cases, this chapter, chapter 2, verse 17, he said, You weary the Lord with your words. Chapter 3, verse 13, your words have been hard against me. God takes it personal when we complain about our life. Now, I am guilty of complaining just like anybody else. I was just fussing this past week. Uh, even though I was in San Diego with all these beautiful beach bums. I was fussing because I missed my house. I wanted to be here. I missed my, my daughters. I'll be honest with you. I, I'd rather, you know, and, uh, you know, but I should just try to flow with everything, you know. Uh, sometimes I don't like traveling that much. But I'm guilty of complaining just like everybody else. And God had to correct me and God had to rebuke me. And I had to get to a point where it said in Psalm 90, it really ministered to me, Psalm 90, verse 1, it says, God is our dwelling place throughout all generations. God had to show me no matter where you are, whether it's your beautiful children in Brooklyn or whether you're in an airport somewhere in Singapore, I am your hotel. I am your house. I am your dwelling. Unless you get to that place where God is your dwelling place, you'll never be happy anywhere. Right? And uh, I happen to like being home a lot, to be honest with you. I'm a homebody. Even though my traveling is so much that they know my first name in every airport of America. Of course, I'm only exaggerating kidding, to make a point. But uh, the point I'm making is that I complain. And it says, your words have been hard against me. And when we complain, we're dishonoring God. And um, when we think about the lifestyle of other people, you know, one of the worst things any of us could ever get into is comparing ourselves with others. Well, why did he get promoted? I've been working here longer. I'm smarter. Why is this person doing this? Why am I not doing this? As soon as you start falling into that, my God, it is a trap, a mental, psychological trap. It's hard to get out of it. It breeds envy and jealousy and competition and problems amongst us. And so God then gave a replacement way to be. In verse 16 of chapter 3, he's showing what he would rather we be like with our words. 
He compares those kind of people with this. Now listen to this. Then those who feared the Lord or respected the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention to this as well. And he heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, said the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then once more you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Wow. You know, the Bible tells us, uh, if you want to look it up, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 to 15, the Bible tells us that when we are born again, when we receive Christ in our life, our names are written in the book of life, right? It doesn't say this, but it implies in this same portion of Revelation 20 that there is a book of death. People who have not their name written in the book of life have their names written in the book of death. And all of us will stand before God one day. And those whose names are not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. It's not a pretty thing to even think about. But there's another book, a third book. This is not for salvation or damnation. It's a book of remembrance. Someone say book of remembrance. And this is for those who not only are saved and going to heaven, but they have so fell in love with Jesus that they enjoy talking about him even when they're not in church, even when they don't have to, when they're just having a normal conversation, they're thinking about Jesus. It's not like they're fanatics running around preaching to everybody. It's not talking more or less. It's not really talking about evangelism. It seems to be talking about when we're with each other. We love talking about the things of God more than talking about other things. That doesn't mean we can't talk about sports. We can't talk about current events. I'm not getting religious here, but there's just something about certain people where you could see that they have a touch of God on them, that they love God, they're passionate about God, and the main thing they want in their life, it's not just to go to heaven. It's they just want to be with God. Even if there was no heaven, they'd want to be with Him. It's just uh, uh, there are certain people you could tell. They just have that passion about them. There's something about God. It's not an act. It's not a thing they put on. It's not something they do. It's who they are. It's Jesus. That's who their life is. And he said, there's a book of remembrance. God says, they're mine. They're the ones. I'll make up my treasure possession. I'll spare them. I'm going to show the distinction between them and others. Somehow or another, he distinguishes those people from everybody else. It's amazing. And then we find another way, number four, and then we're almost done. Fourth way we honor God is with our finances. Chapter 3, verse 7, he says, return to me and I will return to you. Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and offerings. He said, your curse would occur is bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Put me in the te to the test, said the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you. Pour out a blessing until there's no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for your sake so that I will not destroy the fruit of the ground so that you will not fail to bear fruit. And all nations will call you blessed and a land of delight. And so... 
God gives us guidelines for every aspect of our life in this book. Guidelines for how to be in marriage, guidelines for raising children, guidelines for, you know, when you look in the Old Testament, the First Testament, there's even guidelines for agriculture, guidelines for cleanliness, guidelines for diet, guidelines for everything. That's why you should read the First Testament, not just the New Testament. New Testament doesn't have to get into all of this stuff. You have Ten Commandments, you have Civic Commandments, you have Ten Commandments, 613 Civic Commandments, you have ceremonial laws that we can learn from. God gives us guidelines and everything. Do you think that he wouldn't give us guidelines for what we ought to give to him financially? Do you ever know somebody that you made a mistake by buying them a present without checking with them? Now, I'm the kind of guy, you could get me something, and I've gotten some presents that, man, I, I couldn't use them. If you paid me, I wouldn't wear them. But I would never let you know that. I'd say, wow, thank you. Oh, I wouldn't lie, but I would just, just and I'm, you know, I'm looking at the heart. I'm looking at what they meant. Especially my mother, bless her soul, she's in heaven. She would give my kids presents. I mean, I don't want, let me, I'm going to try to stay the straight and narrow path. So, but there are other people, they let you know right away, this isn't what they want, this is what they will wear, and there are certain people I'd rather either get, give them a gift certificate or they have to go with me shopping when I pick out the present, right? Well, God lets us know what offends him when it comes to the area of finances. Now, he, he tells us that we don't give a tithe, we're robbing him. A tithe means 10%. Some would say 10%. Take out your calculator. It means if you make $100 a week, that's $10. That's the minimum you give God. 1000 it's 100 10,000, it's a 1,000. So he says if you don't do it, you're cursed with a curse. Now, in the Second Testament, there's no way you're going to be cursed. That's under the law. But the principle remains the same. If you don't tithe, doesn't mean God's not going to bless you. But what God is letting us know is this is the minimum standard of what he takes serious, of what he says honors him. I will give a tithe whether I get anything back or not. It's not about getting blessed. It's about honoring God. Can you imagine if one day, how about this? Uh, a month ago was my 35th wedding anniversary, right? Can you imagine I take my wife out for dinner and I give her a napkin and I say, Honey, open this up. I think you're going to really like it. She opens it up and it's a crackerjack box gift. Do they still have them? Yeah. You haven't given it to your wife, right? Oh, you have. That's why he's here alone today. But uh, it's better that you didn't give her. A matter of fact, it would be better if you said you forgot the anniversary than if you remembered it and gave us something like that, right? Well, why? Because what you give somebody, again, it's sacrifice, time, money, what you give somebody is connected to what you think of them, what you honor them with, right? Um, and so God is saying this is a guideline. It doesn't mean if you don't give 10%, you're going to hell. 
Well, God may not bless you. God's going to forget about you. You can't pay enough for God to answer your prayers. You give 100% of your money, it doesn't mean God's going to answer your prayers even more. Do you understand what I'm saying? But it's a guideline. And understanding this, it releases us of what is the minimum. And that's the starting point. I, I laugh at people who say, they don't believe in tithing. It's not in the New Testament. First of all, it predated the law of Moses. Abraham gave a tithe. Isaac tithe. Jacob tithe. Adam taught Cain and Abel to tithe because Abel gave the first fruits. Where did they learn that from? That has to do with 10%. So that was something rooted in creation. God taught Adam the principle of tithing. Right? But people say, well, tithing isn't taught in the New Testament, which isn't fully true. I don't have a problem if someone says they don't believe in tithing. You know what I have a problem with? Tell me you don't believe in tithing, but give at least 10% or more. Most of the people who say they give nothing, squat. They give a dollar. They drop 50 cents in the offering, and they're making 50000 You can say that all you want, but give in a way that honors God. And if you don't give at least 10% in God's eyes, in God's mind, from the time of creation, God says that's a minimum of what he deems sacrificial and honorable. How many understand that? All right? Doesn't mean if you don't do it, you're going to hell. Well, God can't bless you, but it's a minimum. And I've never just given a tithe. That's always been the starting point. Um, I want to give a lot more than that. Finally... The fifth theme is found in Malachi chapter 4, and he says, verse 6, this is, verse 5 rather, this is so powerful, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Fifth way is when we care for other people in a spiritual way. He says, I'm going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. This is not just talking about biological fathers. It's talking about spiritual fathers. It's talking about the spiritual leaders of Israel turning back to the children, the ones they were supposed to care for, the ones they were supposed to mentor, the ones they were supposed to shepherd. And then it's talking about the children responding one of the greatest things you could ever do in your life is minister the Word of God and care for somebody younger than you in the Lord. Do you know that? Father's Day, unfortunately, is one of the most confusing days of the year because so many of us, I happen to have a good biological father, but so many of us have not had someone in their life. And when they come to church, a lot of times, the people that pour into them spiritually become more of a father or a mother than their own parents. You know that? That's why many, many of the, the men and women in the church have called me dad, and I think that's the greatest honor in the whole world. Even men older than me. It has nothing to do with age. It has to do with spiritual maturity and pouring into them. And so what is God saying here honors him? He's saying that there's a generational blessing that honors him. When we look at every younger person as a spiritual child of ours, when we look at every older person as a father and a mother, we become a family. 
Every child is your child. Every peer is your brother or sister. Every older person we treat is our parents. That's the way God wants us to be, and that honors him. There are some people in this church who don't even have any children, people like Brian and Eileen, and they minister to so many married couples, so many people. God has given them many spiritual children. And so this is not just the biological family. God has called us to break the curse of fatherlessness over people's lives by being what they never had in their life. In the rabbinic tradition, there's a saying of the rabbis. It says, he who teaches the Torah, which means the Old Testament, he who teaches the Torah to another person's child is as if he brought their child up himself. That's how powerful it is. Those Sunday school teachers are doing an amazing job pouring themselves out for our young people. Those people in the nursery pouring themselves out for someone else's children. Taking young people under your wing. Helping them to be uh, what they're supposed to be. Seeing their potential. Being committed to their success. Uh, being what they never had in their life. Being that to them. Just having someone believe in them. Just having someone care for them, just having somebody hug them, just having someone take time for them. We are breaking generational curses. It's not just stepping on the devil in prayer. It's not just doing this. It's not just saying a prayer. It's being that in their life and replacing the pain with the love of a father or mother. And if God can work that in our church, in a greater way, where the young people aren't on their own. It shouldn't be youth ministering to youth. There should be parents involved. It should be older youth. It should be all of us. They shouldn't be left on their own. We need to pour into them. Parents, of course, in your house, even if you're a single mom, pray with them. Read the Bible. But it takes a church to provide everything that God wants to bring in the home because not every parent has the spiritual gifts they need. To get it done. And so this Father's Day, let's remember these five areas. We honor God by sacrifice. Someone say sacrifice. We honor God by nurturing godly families. Say nurturing godly families. We honor God with our words. Number four, we honor God with our finances. And number five, we honor God with a generational blessing. Let's all stand up. You have just listened to a life-changing message. For more information about Dr. Matera, to read his numerous articles and teachings, or to inquire about more audio and visual resources, go to his website at www.josephgmatera.com.